I have learned over the years that when one's mind is made up, this diminishes fear. Rosa Parks. I might also add this from Ella Fitzgerald. Just don't give up what you're trying to do. Where there is love and inspiration, I don't think you can go wrong. Ella Fitzgerald. Those two quotes are centering me today. As we continue to, to see um, fights and fractures and decisions that are coming about who we are going to be as a society, whether it's the campaign in Minneapolis to, to restructure to a Department of Safety or if it's the continued uh, fight for policies to redress and, and deal with our continuing disparity. There's a lot to be discussed. Bearing Witness, part of the Racial Reckoning Project, is a reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. We are in the midst of, one, not only needing to be determined and to walk in our power and walk in what we think we know, or not what we think, what we know needs to happen for ourselves. And sometimes we can get, we can be convinced that somehow we should have trepidation with that. But we did, if we um, move forward, as Rosa Parks says, with our minds made up that justice is what we want, we don't have to be worried about the fears and stuff around us. Buttress with Ella Fitzgerald saying, look, when, when love and inspiration is there, you can't go wrong. So let's do the ideas. Let's have the ideas. Let's make the changes. That's the space that I'm in today. And so I'm, I'm asking, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, as you've been covering this week, what is top of mind for you? Because you're one who's out there, one, helping to change the narrative, and two, moving forward with that inspiration. Anthony, what I'm following this week is developments on Winston Smith's case. We know that he was fatally shot by a U.S. Marshal on June 3rd. And originally, we were informed that there was no footage of this incident. And so it made it extremely difficult for a community to discern for themselves exactly what transpired on the top of that parking ramp in Uptown. And so now here we are four months later and attorneys have decided that they're not pressing charges against the different agencies or the task force that uh, was involved in that situation. The other thing that I, uh, the other thing that I think is extremely significant in this case specifically is that there was one witness. This witness uh, was a woman who he had taken out to lunch she was in the vehicle with him when he was fatally shot. And her attorney came forward and said that she did not see a gun in the vehicle. She did not see Winston Smith with a gun. And so if the only witness says that and there's no footage for us to see to support the claims that Winston Smith shot first, then here we are in the city of Minneapolis with another incident of a fatal shooting of a black man by the hands of law enforcement that doesn't quite add up. And so people were very distraught and, and disappointed, but not surprised when attorneys came forward and said that they weren't going to be pressing charges against Winston Smith. But the one inconsistency is that they said that they reviewed footage in order to make this determination. That contradicts what we, we heard when he was first killed. What we heard when mm. he was first killed was that there was no footage. So the footage, you don't have any indication, is this, is this footage from local cameras or, is, or were the body cams actually present unlike what was originally reported? So from what I've heard and read, it sounds like these were, this was footage from body cameras. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so we have had, and this, this, so, so we have had demonstrations and issues around the body cameras itself. We had statements from the Ramsey County Sheriff's Department who were part of that task force that, that tried to come out and save face measures and, and, and tactic to say we are not uh, going to continue in a task force anymore because of the, the, the lack of requiring body cams and their absence there. So it seemed like even the folks involved weren't aware that body cams were used, and yet now they, they see some kind of evidence for them. This... This 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 two step doesn't necessarily inspire a whole lot of confidence in 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 system spaces, and this is even, you know, and and, and what does this say about Dante Wright's case, which is coming up? 
for which we have video. And, and again, we're now put into the space of not being sure if we're actually going to get the kind of justice that we're looking for and that our system is supposed to purport to provide. So, so, so what are the implications now? With Winston Smith, if if the attorney is not going to press charges criminally, I don't think that there's anything else that can be done. The family can move forward with uh, seeking a civil uh, wrongful death lawsuit. But those are the two pathways to justice that I've seen. Uh, they can also look at changing the law. When When we are at a place in America where for the last 10 years, our generation has advocated to get accountability in these cases, to make sure that law enforcement agencies are held accountable and that there's some level of transparency. What that has led to is body cameras being used, the recommendation that all agencies use them, right? But now here we learn that, in fact, if you're part of a, federal task force, you're not required to use them. And so there's a loophole. There's a loophole that allows federal task forces to not be held to the same standard of accountability and transparency. And so will the people ever really know what happened? You know, and and I was talking about this in a course I was teaching. Someone asked about, you know, why do we keep, why does the media keep sharing you know, footage of black men being killed. Isn't it traumatizing? Isn't it bad for us? And that's a hard decision to to make of whether or not to publish that kind of content. But it's a double-edged sword because here what we've seen in the case of Winston Smith, of course, nobody wants to see that footage. But yeah, actually everybody wants to see it because everybody wants to know what happened. Everybody wants to know the truth for themselves. Everybody wants to be able to know the truth for themselves and to be able to make a determination of what they think happened by witnessing what unfolded and who shot first and did he have a gun? All of these questions that can't really be answered because when you're given facts from a system, an entity that's telling you they don't have footage and then four months later, they're using footage they said they didn't have to make a determination to not file any charges, how do you trust that what happened or what they're saying happened really happened when they have a history of not telling the truth, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, sh showing that footage is, is hard to internalize and it's traumatizing, but on the other hand, it allows for transparency and accountability to be, to be prevalent in these systems. You know, it it reminds me just because we want to make sure that we we loop the Sankofa loop, you know. Um, Mamie Till um, had her open casket for a very similar reason to make sure folks could see. We 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 have to be able to show and see in order for folks to understand how deep this goes, how deep the rabbit hole is for the suppression um, and the destruction of Black folks, and so. I find a very interesting parallels between our fights now in the presence of these cam of our cameras and and the example that Mamie Till showed um in in having that and having everybody be able to see the destruction visited upon this young man. <clears throat> this this I know is 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 continuing to develop because I know there's also folks who are reaching out for federal intervention, which I think for your points that you just brought up are going to be very interesting because it was federal task forces that were involved in this particular case. And so is is this current administration one that's going to actually own that and take that up in a in a in a way that's going to be something to be seen. Um I want to bring in our guest this morning who um in addition to being being a force uh, uh, for equity in in the city of Minneapolis, but then also um, doing a lot of great work, um, holding writing circles for Black women, and just doing a, a lot around our healers. The healers have been coming out for bearing witness, and it's great that we get to check in with that. So I want to bring in Sister Ebony uh, Adedayo and to to join us and to just reflect on what you've heard us talk about so far. Um, and then I'd love to be able to check in with you as we do each week uh, with community members. And so as you've heard Miss um, George's coverage of this particular thing and some of the patterns that we put forward, what's coming up for you? So much. Um, thank you, first of all, for having me um, and giving me the opportunity to share space with you all this afternoon. Um, so much is coming up for me as I think about 
you know, Winston Smith and what Georgia, Miss Georgia is covering. And then I also think about the two questions on the ballot in Minneapolis. And so I'm having this conversation in my mind about like, what's the best pathway forward? Um, the Winston Smith case, and, and, and I knew this after the killers of George Floyd, Floyd were um, indicted. Like that wasn't, that wasn't, it was it set a precedent of what can happen when we do, um, when law enforcement and agencies decide that they're going to do right. And also we know that they're still going to continue to be loopholes. And so my desire, my hope is that you know, agencies and cops and all those who harm and traffic black bodies will continue to be held accountable. But because of the structure of white supremacy in this country, um, across all different agencies and institutions, I don't see that happening at the degree that we need to have it happen. And so I'm not shocked that Winston Smith's killers are not going to be held accountable um, unless some divine miraculous act of God happens, unless there's some divine intervention. I'm I'm just not shocked because we know what the precedent is. We know what has happened before. And so it, it makes me really sad, but it also makes me feel like all of the fighting that we did up until this point for, you know, George Floyd to have justice and his family to have justice. It's like, you know, God, is it in vain? Because we keep seeing the same cycles repeated over and over and over again. And just because Derek Chauvin was indicted and is now in prison and will stay in prison, um, that doesn't mean that the system is changing or has changed. And so that's the cynic in me. And part of that is because I've worked with the city of Minneapolis for almost five years and have seen how much um, cops and these agencies are protected. And it, it really, it really hurts my heart to see um, that no matter, no matter what, that these agencies continue to um, continue to exist. The, the police union continues to exist. All of these different things continue to exist. And so I was also thinking about the ballot question. And Anthony, I know you referenced this in your opening remarks in terms of like, there's this big debate going on right now about whether or not the Minneapolis um, police department should be um, dismantled or whether we should um, have some type of alternative to public safety. And I tend to land on the side of the second option, um, kind of in the middle between like, yeah, I tend to land on the side of the second option in terms of having an alternative for public safety. And here's why I tend to land on in that particular camp because um, the, the institution, I just don't see the institution changing. And I, I think about this quote from Michelle Alexander, if you ever heard her talk about like um, prison reform, she often references um, reforming slavery. And she talks about like how um, back in the day, well, not even back in the day, she talks about how um, slavery you can't reform slavery. You have to abolish slavery. That's essentially what she's saying in that quote. And so I, 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 when we think about the police being so connected to the institution of slavery, when we think about it being connected to slave bounties and um, catching Black people who are trying to escape for their freedom, when we think about the institution being um, rooted to protecting property of white folks and health and wealthy elite folks. I just, I have a hard time thinking that we can reform this institution and get the best out of it when we know the history. Um, in our sacred text, it talks about if the foundation is destroyed, what should the righteous do? And so the foundation of policing in our country is deeply, deeply flawed and at its core is about harming and trafficking and continuing to marginalize black bodies and other bodies, indigenous bodies, Latinx bodies, API bodies, everybody that has a difference, people who are um, disabled. So we know that this institution is about maintaining whiteness. And so when we think about it from that lens, we have to have the conversation with ourselves, can it be reformed? Can it change? Can it actually work for the benefit of Black and Brown people um, who continue to be hurt and marginalized by it? And I know a lot of people will disagree with me, and I'm okay with that, um, because there's a lot of intra-community violence that's also happening, um, which is really, really sad and which is really, really hurtful to see. Um, but I also don't see the police 
preventing those things. And so it'd be one thing if the police was actually doing their job to prevent the violence that is happening horizontally, but they're not doing that either. And so I really want us to be brave enough to have a, a different type of conversation about the possibilities um, of what can happen when we dare to imagine um, building um, and erecting a different institution. And at the same time, the cynic in me <laughs> also believes that because the structure, not of just policing, but of our entire country is built on white supremacy, sometimes we're just choosing the poison that we want. Yeah. <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Ebony, I think you've brought up such great examples. And, and one of them I heard also shared by uh, civil rights icon Angela Davis. And that was uh, contrasting you know, this idea of reforming police to the idea of reforming slavery. And that was the first case I heard about, uh, you know, the, the abolition mindset that really made sense to me. Uh, because as a storyteller, I'm in community and I listen a lot. And what I've heard from our community is that we are not unified in the way to move forward. We're unified in the end goal. The end goal is that we all feel safe. The end goal is that we're protected against both community violence and police violence, but we're not unified in how to get to that end goal. And so my question for you, Ebony, as we're approaching this charter amendment vote, how do people uh, stand in their truths and what they feel is the best way to move forward reach that goal, but also then not be divided by our differences and how to get there. I think we need to continue to center each other's humanity in the, even as we disagree. And so these are my opinions. These are my beliefs. And I'm not going to disparage someone who believes differently. I'm not going to see them any, any less than who they are. Um, because like you said, the end goal is that we all want safety. The end goal is that we want to see all black lives live to make it another day. That's the end goal. And so as long as we're fighting for that, even if we disagree on the strategy, we can continue to fight together, I believe, and continue to hold space together and continue to be in dialogue together so that we can work it out in the dialogue. Um, as long as that's the goal of preserving and advancing and honoring Black lives, we, we can continue to fight and struggle alongside each other together. You know, that that there in lies, you know, a very important question, even if this with the uh, vote that's coming up, um, is is if and, and and what I heard a lot in the major debates is that we need our deterrent system, right? And, and, and it hasn't been used in those specific words, but essentially at the underground undergirding some of the arguments for folks who are wanting to vote no is is to say no, we can't get rid of the deterrent, um, the the quote unquote deterrent, <laughs> um, for for the violence that's happening and breaking out between groups, um, in inside community. Um, I think there was even a reference from somebody to to you know I'm I'm scared of Pookie and Ray Ray and them. I need somebody to go and deal with them, and so and and there's a similar one happening in where I live in St. Paul in regards to the recent shooting that happened um, downtown, right? And so we we get into the mix and we start responding to what's on the ground, and we lose sight of the larger pictures, right? If we start running the numbers, I think we had D. A. Bullock on 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 at one point, and he gave us this really important quote where he laid out um, the per capita, how many police per per certain number of folks. And, you know, all across the country, uh, the police as a deterrent, right, i.e. I'm not going to commit this crime because I'm scared of police coming to get me is not a huge motive. It doesn't hold out in, in municipalities, even ones larger than us with large, much higher rates of violence. Um, interactions, even though in this moment, because of pandemic and all the other reasons, we are seeing increases in a particular kind of crime. Crime in the whole is actually in a decline, and the number of police officers don't correlate uh, all that well. They do, you know, slightly, but not all that well. Um, the investment would have to be huge, more than any number that we can think of now, right? So mm -hmm. I think in St. Paul, people are throwing around 50 officers. Well, if we use <laughs> the data that's out there for the quote-unquote deterrent, we would need 150 officers to do what folks are, are, are equating this to do, right? So, as, you know, at the same time, larger police force presidents detour or at least can push out of one's own community some of these things that spread it out. 
Well, and Anthony, to that point, I know uh, you mentioned D.A. Bullock. He talked about the military-sized police department that exists in Chicago Mm -hmm. that is not deterring more than 700 murders each year. So uh, for to equivocate uh, increase in policing to a decrease in criminal activity or violent crimes, I, I don't think that we have a... A precedent of that being true—that one. The thing, data does not support it. No, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, I mean, looking there, I think he said they have. Oh, did he say like ten thousand? I mean, it was some large, like huge mm-hmm. police department, but still seven hundred homicides each year. If you go back to the idea of police, even when when they're shooting and harming us, not caring about black bodies. At the end of the day, why would they care, actually really care about the horizontal violence that occurs in our community? Mm. Why would they care? And so I think we also need to ask that question. It's like, what is the motivation? If the if these institutions are trying to kill, and I really believe it's an act of genocide, black communities, why would they care that we're taking each other out? And this 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 that leads right into the response rates and times and things like that like these are the types of things that it makes sense to me that an office designed around safety in a bigger picture might uh, uh <laughs> at least on paper i'm with you on the cynicism side of this because <laughs> i i i i want to see the example of this working for us in that particular way uh and the examples that are often pointed to often tend to be uh wider smaller municipalities but it's something, <laughs> and so your your point around the poison that we that we want is is a huge thing because we we don't seem to have the will to just imagine something completely different and new. At the same time, you know, at the same time, I'll use you know the twenty one days of peace. Right? Why has that been so successful? To me, it it was it's been successful in the areas where it's where it's happened. Because we've been doing the things that focus on, to your point that you just brought up and to the point that you brought up, you've been bringing up consistently, Ms. Georgia, is is um, the fact that that focus is on us, is on the horizontal directions. It's on the let me be out here and see community presence. Folks, when, when, when um, I'll give a perfect example. I haven't shared this yet, um, you know, in a public space. But I remember playing at a park. It was night. And we were playing football in the dark because sometimes we boys are dumb and uh, we can't see the football. And so folks were getting hit in the face. Folks were getting bloody noses. But we were having the most fun and being ridiculous as we tend to be sometimes. As we were doing that, all of a sudden, this cop car comes up, light shines across the field. It's at Wilder Field over in St. Paul, over on the east side. And um, we were, uh, and we all, most of us played for Lower East Side football team, right? So all of a sudden the light shines on there and we realize, oh snap, what time is it? And we are five minutes past curfew. In that space of five minutes past curfew, light shines on the whole field. All of a sudden we scatter. Everybody's running in different places. And I stop. And me and my friend Robert stop and we go, why are we running? We live three blocks away. If the point is to get us home by a certain time, then just tell us to go home. And so we decided we were going to make this, we, we were going to just not run. We weren't going to follow into this normal fight and flight pattern of these folks who come in and only come around when they want to tell us to move on somewhere or scare us into running and doing something. So we walk straight up to the officers. Now, as I'm telling this story, even my anxiety in this space is starting to come up and climb up into my chest because of encounters with police officers I've had in the past. And so we walk up and he goes, and the police officer goes, why did y'all run? And we're just looking in that moment and going, you just shined a light. We know how this goes. What do you mean, why did you run? He's like, well, you look guilty because you ran. If you would have just not ran, I said, well, okay, we didn't run. So what is it? He's like, you're past curfew. So I'm going to give you two choices. Either you run home or we'll take you someplace and your parents will have to come and pick you up. We're like, we live three blocks over there. If I shout right now, my mom will come out and stand outside. We were here playing football, right? One, there are two officers in this encounter. One of the officers is trying to egg and push and get us to say something. And we realize it. And so we're not playing that game. What I found very interesting is that the other officer that was with them, who's a trainee, is coming around. And thank goodness he knew us. 
He said, you're Vicky's son, aren't you? And he came up and we started having a conversation, connected church stuff, connected football stuff. You know, he was saying, I saw y'all, you know, I saw a game a couple of weeks ago. And all of a sudden we start having this conversation and I can just see all of our anxiety go up. At that same time, it was making the frustration of the first officer skyrocket. I could see it on his face that somehow we are being responsive to this person who's meeting us humanly. And, and that was causing frustration. And, 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 and so we got taken down for juvie at the end of the day. And so I'm stuck in this space of, you know, regardless of where this vote is, it seems like on one side we're trying to move towards the direction of the first officer. But I feel like I also got folks who want to see the energy of that first officer. And so in which direction do we go? Um, and there's only two, these two options that are put, that, put here on the table. And so I see where a lot of folks are stuck trying to figure out what they're going to do. Because you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> and that's so unfortunate. That's the society we live in. That's the structure we live in. And we are really, as a people, and we have to be more gracious and gentle with ourselves. We are trying to fight against a structure that has been in place for four or 500 years and trying to change it overnight. And it's hard and it's a comp it's complex and there's so many different intersections and we need to keep fighting to the best of our ability and not tear each other down in the process. We are giving it our all. It, this, we're fighting against a complex thing, really, really complex. And the, the situation that you just articulated, I mean, it, it feels overwhelming sometimes. And the only thing we can do is just keep fighting and hoping that by little by little, that the moves that we make, that's the hope, the moves that we make will bring us closer to the goal that we want in the end. Ebony, would you say that your opinions have changed about policing and public safety um, living in the Twin Cities uh, over the last two years? Do you think that your, your ideas have been shaped by what we've been through in this community? I think my ideas around policing and public safety have been consistent for a while, actually. Um, and so I live in um, St. Paul and Dale and Larpenter. I live just a few miles away from where Philando Castile was shot and killed. Um, the same summer, there was a young man in Milwaukee where I'm from who was also shot and killed. And obviously Jamar Clark had just happened before that. And I grew up in a community in Milwaukee that was surrounded by violence all the time. Our house got shot up so many different times. I can't even count. I remember my mother coming in from outside with her work bag. And this was in the 90s, right? On 37th and Lisbon, just for context. I remember her coming in um, from the car, um, from outside. She had her work bag in the car. And as soon as she got into the house, people were shooting. That's the type of community that I lived in, both my mother and my father communities. That So we were surrounded by the horizontal violence. And at the same time, I've, I, I, the reason I say that is that I have these views because I know that police are part of the problem. They are a huge part of the problem. Even the, in, the horizontal violence that we experience, the police are a huge part of the problem. And so... I think my views have only intensified over the last two years because we of what we have experienced. Like I am tired. My nervous system is so jacked up because of what MPD and all of these other offices continue to do to black people. Like I, my nervous system, like that's one of the reasons why I'm leaving the city. Um, my last day is next Friday. And over the last year, we have lost so many staff within our division because of what continues to happen. Like we can't take it anymore. It is so harmful to continue to work inside of a system where your coworkers, as they tell us, kill black folks. And so the last two years, my, my views have intensified. And obviously I am not in a position where I am consistently surrounded by horizontal violence right now. Um, I live in a part of St. Paul where I am not experiencing that. And so I want to also say that like my views have not, like I'm saying that we need to get rid of the police and I'm not experiencing horizontal violence in that same degree. And so maybe 
maybe there's something to that. And at the same time, I'm like, there's just got to be a different way. I don't believe that we can reform the police department. I don't believe that we can reform these institutions that are destined to harm and kill us. And I know that certainly tracks along with what we've heard from folks who have been trying to work on reform for a while and have been stonewalled in many different areas where you'd see, you would you would think that there would be some cohesion and, con- and, and connection across that, but we don't necessarily see that, right? And so how do we do this work and move that forward at the same time is honoring the fact that the post board, they, there's an attempt to give the post board subpoena power to get some of this information, and that was blocked. And this is before George Floyd, that, um, you know, and, and, and some of the folks who are, 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 are um, on the side of voting no for the upcoming upcoming vote are raising issues like how is this going to be different than all the times that we've organized in, in many, many different times to get some very necessary reforms and those things were ignored by the very folks we're going to leadership with. So there's a very robust um, you know, discussion that ha- carries a whole lot of context and nuance that makes even making decisions about going forward so difficult. And so I think I thank you for for articulating even your own your own you know lived experience um, versus where your thoughts are at and putting that under the table because it helps it helps to give folks you know an understanding that there's a lot of different views and perspectives and thoughts that are going in and making this very hard you know decision um, as difficult as it is and so I thank you for sharing that and lending that perspective one of the one of the things that we seek to do on bearing witness is check in um, about how folks are doing and what. What are the things that you're doing in spite of all that we've talked about so far um, to keep moving forward as Ella Fitzgerald, you know, and, and, and Rosa tell us to do? So I'm curious. I know a little bit because I know you a little bit, Ebony, but, but I'm curious, what are some of the things that you are involved in? Because our response isn't just the turmoil back and forth. We're a community that continues to put solutions on the table. Um, I wish more folks would understand that when they feel made uncomfortable by our very presence, that we wouldn't be participating if we didn't feel like there was something that we can do in the end of this. So what are some of the things that you are engaging in that are cre- that are addressing some of the issues that you are bringing to the table? Sure. So I think there are two things I would want to speak to. So right now I am in my fourth year in my PhD program in curriculum instruction at the University of Minnesota. I'm so excited there. I have one more class left. <laughs> rumble, sister, rumble. I know I'm, I'm over here clapping in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I mentioned that work because my experience with the city of Minneapolis and working across different institutions, whether it be higher education, faith-based, um, governmental, nonprofit, is that many of these institutions are not designed for um, to promote, to center the wellness of Black women. And so as I am studying and focus on my, my scholarship at the University of Minnesota, my biggest focus is how to increase, how to center Black women, not only in the work that we produce, but in our wellness. Our spiritual wellness is one of the things that I center and I think about. And parallel to that work, I also have an organization called the Aya Collective, which gathers Black women together to do writing in community with each other. Over the last year, we have put together, um, we've had like maybe 20 to 24 different Black women come together, not all from Minnesota. Some of them are from Ohio and California. I think those are the two other states. But we've come together and we are putting together this anthology that talks about our experience as Black women. And so there are pieces in the anthology that talks about motherhood and and um, being um, being married and having children. And there are pieces that talk about spirituality. And there are other pieces that just talk about the struggle of trying to do life as a Black woman in a society that hates Black women. Um, and I'm really excited about this work because there are so many different voices. And even though we have so many different um, experiences, we're coming together, validating each other. That anthology, that book will be released in 2022 by the grace of God. But in addition to the writing that I'm doing with the Aya Collective, I also am an author and have a couple of books um, called The Gospel According to a Black Woman, as well as Incomplete Stories. Those two books I um, wrote and published over the last year or so. And I'm and I hold writing circles around those two books too, because I want other Black women and other people who read them 
to also write and articulate their experience. And so my thing about, especially with the gospel according to a black woman, is it's not according to black women. Like all of us have a different gospel. All of us have a different truth based on the experience in our own lived reality. And I think we need to articulate those things even more. So my personal ambition in, in life is to inc- um, to see more Black women writing, whether it's you're publishing something professionally or you're journaling on a daily basis to increase the number of Black people who are writing and doing that reflexive process, because I think that is so good for our souls and our spirits. And so that's one of the that's one of the ways in which I I try to fight and I try to be a presence in in, in what I'm doing because I see black women my colleagues in the city I saw how much we suffered in in higher education I see other black women and some of the things that we're dealing dealing with and how much we suffer in faith-based institutions I can tell you multiple stories of black women and so I have a background in ministry of black women who tried to be in ministry who tried to do these different things and were blocked on every turn and so my purpose in bringing these stories together is that we have to begin to articulate and, and elevate our truth and our experience saying that it's valid. It's valid. And the world needs to respond and listen to it. So th- those are just a couple of things that I'm doing. A couple, I mean, besides raising children, you know, it's a, that, that's a lot. Uh, I have two beautiful kids. Um, and like I said, we live in St. Paul. They're eight and 11. Um, they're excited to be in school again this year. And I hope that we can continue to be in face-to-face and not doing distance learning. Um, but they are a joy in my life. And so I want to shout them out too, because they're amazing. See. So- I, you know, I, I love so much about that. And and I'm glad you brought up the book, Gospel According to a Black Woman, because it has put me into the gut bucket of existential crises for my own complicitness in this very project. And so thank you for that, um, uh, for, for kicking me into that, into that zone and locking me up inside and making me <laughs> think about some things deeply. But there's something that you bring forward that I think is is really important, especially for the Ella Fitzgerald quote. You say in your book, you said, what would happen if instead of continuing to internalize a lie based on white heteropatriarchal supremacy, we took a position that we are holy, divine, in fact, reflecting the image and wisdom of God? Yes. This, that line, that, 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 in, that, that invitation to reimagine is something that I think is wholly missing. And if we look throughout our history, we see that black women over time have asked us to do that question over and over and over again. And we have not listened. We have not listened, you know, whether internally, you know, in community or, or even externally. What, what would happen if? And that's something that I, I, really, I really love the invitation to do, to imagine what if. And it's something that in, in, in me and Georgia have gone back and forth on this quite a bit of feeling those moments of going, oh, here we go. Here's yet more fracturing. Here's yet more stuff that we have to deal with. Here's yet another incident. I mean, we were just breaking down the Chauvin trial and, and, and getting ready for the verdict when, 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 uh, Dante, uh, when Dante uh, uh, Wright happened. We never get a chance to stop and imagine or space to imagine what if we think about this differently. So I love that your book invites that question and then explores that question for black women. I can't wait for my daughter to pick it up. She's in the middle of reading The Hate You Give now, but she's going to get that book. Um, Dr. Krajis Jackson uh, came on, on on our podcast and, and, and we received, I received her two books from my daughter, uh, Uneffable, which I can't wait for her to take to school. That's going to be hilarious. And uh, The Becky Code. I can't wait till she starts reading those. But I need to ask you two... <laughs> you know, more explicitly, right? Where are you doing your biggest dreaming? Where are you finding yourself doing your biggest dreaming? I'll let Ebony go first. That is such a good question. Where am I doing my biggest dreaming? I think in my, in my work, in my scholarship, 
I'm doing a lot of dreaming. And so believing that I can have an institution, an organization that um, a vibrant, um, thriving organization that can um, center the truth and the experience of Black women. And we can continue to do that. And we can do curriculum and have teaching and training and have a space and build community and center spirituality and just be so bomb. Um, So I'm doing a lot of dreaming there. But I'm also doing a lot of dreaming around my children, too. I want my children to grow up and turn out better than I did. I don't want them to have to deal with the same trauma and the same struggles that I did. And so I'm at a season in my life where I'm also being very reflexive and I'm thinking about how to break generational curses, how to break the generational trauma that gets bypassed generation after generation in my particular family. And so I'm thinking very um, family focused in terms of how how I do that. And so I'm beginning to dream like and have conversations with them about like just what's showing up in their bodies, how they can um, think about, think differently about what's going on around them. And so for an example, the other day, my my daughter, I don't know why I always call her my sister. She always reminds me of my sister. <laughs> but my daughter is having this experience where she is scared because she is um, in the car with her father and there is a man who is cussing him out. And she begins to tell me play by play what's happening in her body and how she felt. She said, mommy, my stomach hurt. Mommy, I felt tension in my chest. Mommy, I felt like I was freezing. And I'm like, wow, she's 11 and she can articulate what is happening to her. I could not do that when I was at 11 because of so much that had happened to me. I was suppressing everything. And so if I had a similar experience when I was, I couldn't, I didn't have that type of language. And so like for me with her and with my son, I'm doing the same type of coaching with my son is that when you're experiencing something begin to pause and take note of what's happening in your body. And also, how do you, how do you settle and how do you do? And I have to tell you, I've been so inspired by the work of Resma Menachem. And that's where I'm learning a lot of this stuff is like, how, how can I raise my children to be different so that when they're 38, when they're approaching 40, they're not walking around carrying some of the same baggage and not having to ask the same questions. They're going to have their own struggles for sure. But I want their struggles to not be because of that generational trauma that I that that lives inside of me. And so I'm doing a, I'm spending a lot of time investing in them um, on the way to school at night, just taking the pause so that they can be better. And so that I, and which means that I also have to be better. So I'm also spending a lot of time working on myself and dreaming about how I can get free, how I can be the freest ebony possible. That's good, sis. That's good. And I would say, you know, those are not just, I think, great conversations and and great coaching for our children, but also for ourselves. You know, those are things that we as adults, uh, like you said, our generation wasn't necessarily raised to pause and, and ask ourselves what's happening in our body. And so, yeah, we absolutely should be encouraging our children to do that, but we should also be creating space for ourselves to do that as well. Um, and and I've been inspired by Resma's work as well in trying to process how my body was responding, covering the trial every single day, covering the protests, Dante Wright. I remember, you know, being to a point where uh, on June 3rd, when I went to go cover what happened to Winston Smith? I was, my, I couldn't hold it anymore. I was just weeping. And so it's so important to do that. Anthony, I wanted to answer your question also about like dreaming. You know, a lot of my work in terms of media has centered around disrupting the practices and mainstream media to create more equitable narratives about communities of color. And so I've been dreaming on how to take my work in narrative justice and media reform to the next level. And how can I create an ecosystem for other people to do this work alongside me? Outside of that, there has been, I feel like this foreshadowing of little small opportunities, little nuggets that have been placed in my life to explore 
the need for economic justice in our community. Mm. Um, I don't talk a lot about the work that I've been doing in in development in terms of uh, purchasing a commercial property to get my husband's business in a permanent building and how that revealed to me the gatekeeping, the old guards, the loopholes that you have to try to jump through to get access to funding and how there's so many barriers that disposition small black owned businesses from having access to capital. And, and Ebony, when you, you talk about centering women, you look at the statistics, less than 1% of capital investment go to black women owned businesses, less than 1%. And so there has just been outside of the narrative justice work that I've been doing, there has just been all of these examples in, in really in my personal life, in, in the work I've been doing to try to accumulate generational wealth. I have three daughters and, and I absolutely want to break the generational curse of poverty and make sure that they don't have to work half as hard as I've had to work. And in order to, to ensure that, I have to have something I can leave them. But as I'm doing the work of trying to leave them with something, I'm, I'm being met with all of these obstacles. Um, but realizing my experience is a microcosm of a larger narrative of, of you know, uh, of statistics, really. My experience is, is the story of the statistics that we face with here, the disparities. For example, 17, only 17% of Black residents in Minnesota own their home. Mm. I'm not one of the 17%. And, and just today, I found out that um, we, we had a gap we had to close, and I'll wrap up here. We had a, glap, a gap we had to close for, for the financing of the renovation of this building we purchased. And um, the bank denied us. And I, I told them, I said, I'm, I'm not surprised. And this is why we have not engaged banks in our work. We have only engaged community partners and community organizations who believe in the purpose of what we're doing. Because at the end of the day, when you look at what's happening inside of a boxing club, the mentorship that's happening, the at-risk youth who are off the street and in a safe place, that work needs to be done, whether or not that business is generating a million dollars. That's the crime prevention we need in mm. our communities. Come on, you better preach. But... The bank oh, will only there. finance your renovation or your property acquisition if you're turning a million dollars. And so if we continue with this mindset that we're only going to put dollars behind businesses that are producing gross amounts of money, irregardless if they're also uh, producing you know, work that's impactful, then people are going to continue to get left behind and mission driven businesses are going to be wiped out, you know? And so it, it was just kind of this aha moment, you know, for me, I guess, I don't know, maybe I had hoped that something had changed hmm. and that we would get what we need from this entity, especially showing that the business had raised half a million dollars in the last year and a half. I, I don't know what else you can show to a bank that proves you're bankable. Um, and so, you know, I'm just dreaming about a Minnesota that creates spaces for people who look like us to strive financially. Uh, I'm, I'm dreaming of an America that, that creates economic opportunities for our community to obtain generational wealth. I, I really appreciate both of y'all going to that question. Usually at this time, as we as we close out our podcast, I'm asking the question, how are you being you? But this just, today felt like a different kind of day. And so this question around dreaming for me, um, I, I am finding myself dreaming in moments that aren't, that aren't every day. Um, so, you know... I, I am I am now pastoring a church in in Duluth, Minnesota, and my daughter and I drove up the North Shore last weekend as we went up, and we're standing at the shore and skipping rocks into Lake Superior, seeing the vastness of it, seeing how little we are in comparison to the to, to greater things, and our car trip, all these ideas just started to come through. We're just talking, and and we found that we are outside of what was normal. We're someplace we ain't never been. We were we're we were. Um, 
you know, having a time together that wasn't scripted, that wasn't part of, of anything else. And we were just, and I found that we allowed ourselves to dream about different ways of doing things about, you know, what if, what if we weren't locked in to the ways in which we're told we have to be locked into certain things? You know, what if we imagine something different? Um, you know, Ebony, that's what led me to think about that, that quote that, that from your, from your book, because you ask a similar question, you know, what if we see ourselves differently? And so where I find myself dreaming the most is when I step out of and can figure out ways. It's not always easy and it doesn't always work, but when I can find myself stepping out of a space and saying, I'm just going to imagine that there are no boundaries, right? I, I, I love the Matrix movies because I think it's a good allegory for a whole lot of things, but there's a moment where he says there is no spoon, right? And, 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 I, and I think it's corny, but I, it, 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 works, it works for me to step out of a space um, and be able to say, you know what? What if I imagine that this isn't a limitation? What if I imagine that we could do something completely different here? And then all of a sudden, this creative idea space comes back. And I imagine it's similar to what happens at the Aya Collective. Um, when you get together and you throw out the bounds, you don't have to translate for nobody. You don't have to prove nothing to nobody. You just get to be the creativity that comes back into that space. So I find myself dreaming by stepping out intentionally out of the everyday minutia and, st- and, 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 and it's enhanced by nature, yes, for me. Um, but then being able to ask that question, what if? And then just see whatever comes out of that. Um, and that has not only been freeing, I have found that it's giving me a resilience and staying power even in the complex things that we need to actually we need to work through and be a part of, like this vote coming it up, like the continued conversations that we have, like the question of what imagine what public safety even looks like. Um, and 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 can I have that conversation unbound by how we've done it before? Free of those structures. And I think that's the place where I'm finding myself dreaming the most. Sister Ebony, thank you so much for coming on and joining with us. We have healers in the space. You were mic drop. You were preaching today. Um, and I appreciate you so much. How can folks get to you and be a part of your work? Sure. So you can um, find me on the socials. Ebony Adedayo um, is my Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can, if you want to have more information about the Aya Collective, you can go to ayacollectivemn.com. If you, which is A-Y-A, collectivemn.com. If you are wanting to um, look at the gospel according to a Black woman, want a writing workshop around that work, or my recent work, Incomplete Stories on Lost Love and Hope, which is a story about my grandmother and me starting to write once she gets Alzheimer's and looking back at our family history. You can find both of those stories on my website, ayamediapublishingllc.com. Again, that's ayamediapublishingllc.com. So we always end our show um, with our, our, uh, the words of one of our favorite healers. So I'm going to kick it to Miss Georgia to close this out. In the words of Dr. Joy Lewis, may the revolution be healing. This is Bearing Witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Mm -hmm.